You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled, Arrest the Parents. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question of the day, I thought I'd ask you about coffee consumption. The question is, which country consumes the most coffee per person? And since there are so many countries in the world, I'll give you the top five in alphabetical order. If you really want to challenge yourself, try placing them in numeric order. So here we go. Here are your choices. Is it one, Denmark, two, Finland, three, Germany, four, Netherlands, or five, Sweden? Again, which of these five countries consumes the most coffee per capita? Is it one, Denmark, two, Finland, three, Germany, four, Netherlands, or five, Sweden? As always, I'll let those choices simmer in your mind for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. So let's move on to today's story that's titled, Arrest the Parents. And it really starts with a thinking question. That is, should parents be held responsible for the delinquent behavior of their children? For example, if a child was to constantly skip school, should the parent be fined or penalized in some way? Or if a child committed a crime, should the parent be jailed for negligence? Having been a high school teacher for the past 24 years, I have heard this concept brought up many, many times. Now, I don't pretend to have an answer, nor do I desire to sway your opinion in any way, but I encourage you to keep this question in the back of your mind as you listen to the following story that occurred in January of 1947. You see, at the time, New York City police were on the hunt for a sniper, and he had been taking pot shots from both rooftops and street level with a 22 caliber rifle. Over a 24-hour period, three unsuspecting people were shot in the vicinity of 50th Street between 9th and 10th Avenues, and that's in the Hell's Kitchen section of New York City. None of the victims were severely injured, but the community was on edge. Neighborhood children told authorities that it was the work of a teenage boy that they had been providing food for. He was known only as Gypsy, and police went door-to-door in search of the suspect, but he was nowhere to be found. There was a very good reason for that. While most children had been in school, this boy hadn't attended in months. 
Instead, he typically filled his day by riding the 9th Avenue bus for long stretches of time. So once he learned of this habit, the police greeted him with open arms as he stepped off the bus on the evening of Wednesday, January 22nd. Gypsy turned out to be 14-year-old Frank Probla Jr. And Frankie immediately admitted to the shootings using a rifle that he had recently stolen from a pawn shop window. As police questioned the boy, he claimed that he was homeless, he did not have a father, and he had absolutely no clue as to where his mother was living. Frankie had last seen her two days prior in a tavern. He said that he'd been living on the streets and sleeping mostly in the entranceways and the cellars of various buildings around the neighborhood. Now, unlike today, the judicial system moved quite quickly back then, and the very next day, Frankie was found guilty of juvenile delinquency. He was then shipped off to the New York State Training School for Boys, which is located in rural Warwick, New York. Now, the general idea of the Warwick School, which was transformed in 1977 into the recently closed Mid-Orange Correctional Facility, the idea was to take children out of their dysfunctional and often violent city lives and place them into a facility that offered more structure, support, education, and practical skills such as farming and woodworking. In its early years, this program had incredible success, and while I have no way of confirming one way or the other, it would be nice to think that the gypsy Frankie Problet was one of them and that he lived happily ever after. Normally, that would have been the end of the story. You know, and in a big city like New York, sending a boy off to reform school would be far too minuscule of a story ever to make a paper like the New York Times. But Frank Jr.'s case was very different. That's because he just happened to be arrested just at the moment when the police commissioner, who was Arthur W. Wallander, he had decided to crack down on a post-war surge in juvenile delinquency. His secret weapon was a long-forgotten law that New York State had passed 37 years prior in an attempt to hold parents responsible for the actions of their children. Under the law, a child was to be dealt with in juvenile court and the parent was to be dealt with in an adult criminal court. As a result, the judges in the children's courts lacked the jurisdiction to have the parents arrested and the law therefore was basically never used. But that didn't stop Commissioner Wallander. The parents of Frank Probley Jr. would prove to be the first prosecuted under this newly revived law. Actually, it was just one parent, his mom. You see, she had divorced Dad five years prior and was awarded sole custody of Frankie and his 16-year-old sister, Olga. Late on Thursday, January 23rd of 1947, Genevieve Rivera Problet was arrested and charged with neglecting her offspring. It was quickly learned that she had been born in Puerto Rico to a family that had far too many children to care for, so her parents opted to send her at the age of 8 to New York City to be raised by childless relatives. Then, when Genevieve turned 16, the couple unsuccessfully tried to marry her off to a man who was twice her age. Instead, she married another old man, that's Frank Problet, at the age of 19, and she gave birth to the two children by the time she was 20 years of age. As I've already mentioned, the marriage did not last. Dad eventually abandoned the family, and that forced Mom to find any type of work she could to keep food on the table and a roof over their head. 
As a result, Genevieve, quote, drifted into a shameful, tawdry life. Unable to care for her children, she sent them to live with her mother-in-law, and that led to young Frankie living on the streets. So what we have here is an uneducated 33-year-old woman who was basically abandoned by her parents at a young age, spoke no English, was unemployed and flat broke, and was now facing a fine or possible jail time for being a bad parent and the supposed cause of her son's crime. To make matters worse, it was revealed that Olga had run away and she could not be found. The morning after her arrest, which would be Friday, January 24th, she was arraigned in children's court, held on $1,000 bail, and remanded to the woman's house of detention. A hearing was held before Justice Matthew J. Desario on Monday. He found her guilty of violating Section 61 of the Domestic Relations Act. Guilt is one thing, but what would be the sentence for a crime that her child committed? You know, possibly a few days, a couple of weeks, a month maybe? For that answer, Genevieve would have to wait four more days to find out. I don't think anyone was prepared for what the judge did. He gave her the maximum sentence allowed for a misdemeanor at the time. That was one year in the penitentiary. During the sentencing, Justice DeSario said, quote, You, Mrs. Revere, by your own actions and conduct have been found guilty by me. There is no question that I gave you a fair trial. But how could the decision be other when you went from bar to grill, drink after drink, and from apartment to apartment with men as you yourself testified? He added, it was through your neglect that three innocent persons were shot by your delinquent son. They might have lost their lives or have been maimed for life. Almost immediately, debate started in the press as to whether or not this decision was the correct one. Take, for example, Edward Carey. He was a brigadier for the Salvation Army, and he was quoted as saying, As a curative measure, this is ineffective. The only worthwhile effect it may have will be on other parents. It may shock them into some sense of responsibility. He added, It's a rather sad commentary in a society that requires plumbers, elevator operators, bricklayers, lawyers, and doctors to be highly trained for their task, that there's no universal requirement for parenthood except the biological ability to procreate. On a March 3, 1947 broadcast of the show, In My Opinion, on WCBS Radio, G. Howland Shaw, who was then the president of the Welfare Council of New York City, he strongly criticized, quote, the overemphasizing of the role of parental responsibility in juvenile delinquency. He added that, If this overemphasis should coincide with the popular belief that punishment of the parents is a new way of solving the problem of juvenile delinquency, then we have taken an important step backwards. Appearing on the same show, Justice DeSerio countered with, quote, Could I or would I be so spineless as to adjourn the case, step aside, and refuse to perform my duty? Of course not. The mother was fairly and properly tried, for such neglect was found guilty and sentenced. I simply had performed my duty. He further stated that there was, quote, entirely too much parental neglect and that it was, quote, high time for a showdown. 
An appeal of the decision was arranged by the Society for the Prevention of Crime at no cost to Ms. Rivera. The appeal was made on two grounds. First, that the one-year sentence was disproportionate to her supposed offense. And second, that the court didn't have any jurisdiction to hear the case. In other words, why shouldn't an adult be tried and convicted in a court that was designated for children? At a discussion titled, Juvenile Delinquency, Who is to Blame?, which was held at Congregation Road of Shalom on March 17th, Edwin Lucas, who is the executive director of the society filing the appeal, said, quote, She has no strength left. She tried to support her children, but she couldn't. Parents have contributed a great deal to the delinquency of their children, but just as children are seen as products and victims of their environment, so are the parents' products and victims too. A Mrs. Philip Houts commented, quote, What makes one child become a juvenile delinquent while a brother or sister grow up into a law-abiding citizen when they are both subject to the same environment in the same family? While the decision to punish parents for the delinquency of their children was hotly debated at the time, there was one small positive effect. That was that the children's court was receiving between 20 and 30 calls each day from parents who feared being arrested themselves. Basically, they were throwing their own children under the bus to save their own hides. On June 25, 1947, the Appellate Division of the New York State Supreme Court handed down a unanimous decision. The court said that the lower children's court did, in fact, have jurisdiction to convict her. And, quote, there was sufficient competent evidence to justify a conclusion that the defendant had been grossly negligent of the child's welfare. That all makes it sound like Genevieve Rivera lost the case, but the court actually reversed her conviction. Why? It's very simple. All that talk of the tavern she'd been visiting, the men that she'd been spending time with, and just the general nature of her life was all hearsay evidence. As a result, the evidence should not have been used against her, and the court reversed her conviction. They recommended a new trial should authorities deem it necessary, though they hinted that the five months she had already spent in prison was probably long enough. Everyone thought that she was still in prison, but she was not. The day after the decision was overturned, it was learned that since she had been acting oddly behind bars, she had been sent to Bellevue Hospital for evaluation, and doctors determined that she was suffering for dementia praecox, which today is better known as schizophrenia. As a result, she was committed to the New York State Hospital for the Criminally Insane three weeks prior. I was unable to find out whether Ms. Rivera was released or not, but I did find a story that was written about 10 months after her conviction was overturned, and it indicated that she had not. Now, I was curious to see if little Frankie was still alive, so I checked the Social Security Death Index, and he was not listed there. So he could still be alive. And if so, he'd be around 81 years of age. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. Hey, Dad. Did you check your car filters today? No, son, I didn't. Why? Because it might pay you $1,000. $1,000 for a car filter? That's right, folks. You may have a filter under the hood of your car worth $1,000 and not even know it. A Fram filter worth $1,000 silver dollars. A regular filter change is important to today's cars. So important that Fram Corporation is paying $60,000 to get you to check your filters now. Last year, in preparation for Fram's silver anniversary... 10,000 secretly numbered Fram filter cartridges were distributed all over the United States and installed in cars during regular servicing. These filters are worth from $1 to $1,000. You may have one in your car right now and not even know it. Check your oil filter and air filter now. If there's a specially numbered Fram filter in your car, you will win up to $1,000 silver dollars and your dealer will win the same amount. Get in on Fram's big silver treasure hunt. Check your car filters now. That clip is from a collection of 50 old radio commercials that you can find on the Internet Archive website at archive.org. Unfortunately, they provide no further information about it when it was broadcast or on what show or whatever. The name Fram is derived from the names of the two Providence, Rhode Island chemists who invented an easily replaceable oil filter for automobiles back in 1932. Their names were Frederick Franklin and T. Edward Aldham. Take the first two letters of Franklin's name, that's F-R, and combine it with the last two letters of Aldham's name, that's A-M, and you get Fram. The original filters were all hand-assembled with production reaching about 10 units per day in 1934. It wasn't until Studebaker included Fram oil filters in their 1936 model that the company really started to grow. Today, it is one of the largest aftermarket manufacturers of oil filters in the world. Now, since this commercial was broadcast in honor of Fram's silver anniversary, a little math suggests that it would have been around 1957. And now for a few totally useless yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call news of the weird past. And all of today's tidbits deal with fads. Our first tidbit for today is dated October 29th of 1893, when it's reported that a new ring-turning fad had been sweeping the nation. Here's how it supposedly worked. When a young lady meets a young man with a ring on his finger, she is to politely turn the ring two or three times. 
She does the same to the next young man and so on until she's turned the rings a total of 24 times. Once that task has been completed, the young lady needs to go up to a married person, male or female, and turn their wedding ring twice. Then, just then, the next man that she shakes hands with will be her future husband. The article reported that so much time had been wasted at one factory in doing this that the boss was forced to hang up a sign that said, quote, any employee caught practicing the ring-turning business will be immediately discharged. Our next story is dated March 6th of 1927. It's reported in the New York Times that the so-called sunbath tea parties were the latest fad sweeping through London. Upon arrival at the house hosting the party, guests changed into their bathing suits and then they went into a room that was lit by sun-ray lamps. They then would lie down while, quote, enjoying the beneficial rays from the lamps, while they sat around drinking some tea, making some small talk, and of course, at that time, listening to the radio. Today, as we all know, the UV rays produced by those early sun lamps would prove to be quite hazardous to one's health. And our last tidbit for today is dated October 18th of 1946, when it's reported that socialites across the country have been opting to get small tattoos on either their ankle or knee. This, however, did not require the use of needles and ink. A company called Gotham Hosiery came up with a painless solution. The tattoos were really stenciled onto sheer nylon pantyhose, and they supposedly looked quite realistic. Five designs were available at the time. That was a heart, a dove, a butterfly, a horseshoe, and a cupid. Sorry sellers, but there were none of those that featured a mermaid or the word mom emblazoned across it. And now for the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked which of these five countries consumes the most coffee per capita. Was it one Denmark, two Finland, three Germany, four Netherlands, or five Sweden? Well, coming in at number five was Germany with 1.231 cups per day. In fourth place is Denmark at 1.237 cups per day. Third is Sweden at 1.357 cups per day. And second is Finland at 1.848. That leaves just one country, Netherlands, that consumes the most coffee per day. The average person gulps down 2.414 cups per day. That's the only country in the world to exceed two cups per person per day. If you're curious about the United States, it comes in 16th at 0.931. That's less than a cup a day, which I find very surprising because it seems like there's a Starbucks on every corner. Of course, many of the countries that don't consume a lot of coffee do drink a lot of tea. While most people would think that China consumes the most tea per person, the title really belongs to Turkey at 7.52 kilograms, or about 16.5 pounds per person per year. China ranks 33rd at 0.82 kilograms, or about 1.8 pounds. The U.S. comes in 69th at 0.33 kilograms, or a little under three quarters of a pound. Since I don't drink coffee and my consumption of tea is limited to a small amount of iced tea, I can say that I am definitely not helping the average as much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's main story, Arresting the Parents, and all the other additional stories that I provided. If you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. 
They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart, both written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller online and from your local library. If you'd like to contact me for some reason, be sure to go to my Facebook page. That's www.facebook.com slash useless information podcast. That's all one word, useless information podcast. You can also email me at useless at steve.silverman.name or go to my website, uselessinformation.org. Any of those methods will get to me. Once again, I apologize for the lateness in posting this episode. seems like that's happening a lot lately. For the past few weeks, I spent nearly every waking moment working on my house. I removed all the siding, the underlying sheathing, and then the old 1950s insulation simply so they could come in and spray more modern foam insulation in. That's been done, so now it's just a matter of putting the house back together. At least when it's all done, I'll be toasty warm this winter. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye.